God is like a mustard seed, which grows into the largest tree in the garden. And then I sort of continued the sentence. I put these two verses together. And yet, unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains what it is. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so you can see how this this parable, this vision of, of a seed that grows, that is the smallest thing, but can grow into the largest thing. Um, you can kind of add it to another one of Jesus' parables. He doesn't say these things together, but when you add them together, you get something pretty profound because he, he says elsewhere that a tree does not bear fruit unless it dies. And so things do have to die for other things to grow, right? And so in one sense, I was telling you the truth when I said you, you have a superpower in your foundation and it only has to grow from there. You don't have to undo that stuff. But at the same time, you kind of do. Like some of it does have to be undone for new things to grow. So I'll use Peter as the example, right? So Peter um, has this biblical idea, I think, of what the Messiah should be like. He's going to rule over the nations. And yet, and so he's not wrong. And his idea of Jesus will be built off of that foundation. It's not like Jesus is like, no, Peter, like ignore all the Old Testament and then I'll show you who I really am, you know? And I feel like sometimes we tell the story of Jesus like that. It's like, you don't need to know any of that, you know, any of that stuff. Um, just look at how kind Jesus is in the New Testament. You'll know him. No, like you, Jesus is the fulfillment of that vision of a king, of, of even a violent king in a sense um, in the Old Testament. Um, but the way that Peter end, ends up seeing that fulfillment happen is by giving up some of his ideas of who he thinks the Messiah is, right? So something has to die um, in Peter's understanding for something else to live. And so if you're, and so this is kind of how I begin to deal with, and we won't go too far into this, but that first question I have there about deconstruction, and if you guys have probably knows, noticed this word being used a lot the last few years, you've probably seen um, people who are Christian leaders who have kind of gone through that thing or some of your friends who have gone, who have used that term and sort of gone through that. You probably, you probably all have friends who were Christians that maybe aren't anymore or don't really know what they believe or believe in a, in a very different form of the faith than they did years ago. Um, and a lot of that, I think, can fall under this, this term that we call deconstruction. Um, and so I, I'm saying that I'm giving credit to that phenomenon in a sense and saying like, yes, like a lot of the problem that's happening with deconstruction in our, in our culture, at least, is that people started out with, you know, let's say a 14-year-old version of their Christian faith, which was good enough for the 14-year-old version that you were, <laughs> because you can't know everything at once. And so sometimes someone just has to say, like, this is enough for you. Like, God loves you. and He died for you. And you can live off of that. Like, you can live off of that for a lifetime, in a sense. Um, but you can definitely live off of that in its simplicity right now. But then over time, there's just all these contradictions and challenges from the outside to the simple faith that you thought you knew. And so what happens, like I was saying in, in deconstruction, is you, you kind of are faced with two choices. One of the choices is you, you just kind of say like, no, like I will not. I will just keep my simple faith and will always stay simple. And whatever other evidence is presented to me about the complexity of life outside um, I will ignore it. And you can see like a hyper version of this in what we call fundamentalism now. It's it's almost like an insult to, to use that term um, because you'll sort of have someone who's just kind of like, well, the Bible says it, I believe it. And so there it is, you know, and, and it's just sort of like, yeah, but there's so much complexity. Like, have you met my friend? Like he's got this thing going on inside of him that you don't understand. <laughs> no, no offense to the Southern accent. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
it's it not it's not only people with southern accents that think that way. Mostly, but not just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but you, but you know what I mean. And so you can have that type of protectivist faith that's just basically like I know what my faith is. It's protecting the thing I already know, and that's just like what you think faith is basically. And there's a sense in which, of course, that's true. You should guard what you already know. The Bible says, you know, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. You should guard the truths that you already know in a sense. But um, but you shouldn't guard them from God. Because <laughs> one of the outside factors, I mean, like I said, Jesus is in here with you. But Jesus is also out here. And so if you're guarding yourself from the Jesus that is out here, that wants to, to stretch what you believe in a sense, then you are guarding yourself from God, from more of God, from experiencing more of who he is. And the way he present, presents himself is through reality. Like it is through spiritual means, of course. But it's also through a lot of this sort of chaos of the world around you where you're just like, whoa, I didn't know that. I didn't know that someone could go through that kind of experience. That, that changes things, you know? And then, and then the question is, how does it change things? Does it change things by exploding everything that you thought you knew? That would, that would be sad to me. Does it change things by making you jump ship to an entirely different way of believing because you discovered that somebody else sees things totally differently? Does it change things by just, by just like making this a total mess where you're just like, well, I just don't know what I believe about anything anymore. That's, that, those are the kinds of questions that we mean when we're talking about deconstruction. And so what I want to present to you as a tool is to say that there's something better than deconstruction, at least than the word deconstruction. I, I don't love the word. It has this, like I was saying, this kind of scientific sort of like, if you can just take things apart, and Lucas was talking about this in a way, it's a, the car analogy is a helpful analogy. Because what happens when you take a car apart? You can see what it's made of, but the trouble is you can't see what a car is anymore. Because a car is not actually the sum of its parts. It's a thing that gets you from point A to point B. It's a thing that like, has transformed our society. It's a thing that allows people to work 30 miles away from where they live. It's a thing that ends up making you not know your neighbors because you, most of us now can work 30 miles away from where we live. It's a thing that transforms what we even think of as a human being, in a sense. Because now human beings can do things like that, like travel 30 miles in, you know, in, in a very short time span. And so a car is all kinds of things that you cannot see just by looking at its parts. Sorry if that like sort of like confuses you for a moment. But the reason I'm using that metaphor is because you could take a, you could go back to your like seventh grade version of Christianity. You could start taking it apart and you could be like, whoa, that guy, like I thought he was trustworthy at the time. He definitely wasn't in this way, in this way, in this way. And they told me this, you know, sentence. I remember them always saying this. And like that didn't actually mean that. And you could do that. And you would be right. Just like if you took the car apart, you'd be like, yeah, this, this is a carburetor or whatever. Like those, those are all true parts of the thing. But you can't actually see the whole that way. You can't see what it did. You can't see that all the imperfections of that thing that you were and that you went to at your church in seventh grade have led you to where you are now. You see what I mean? Like you can't see the hand of God in that just by taking it apart. And so what, what I prefer to deconstruction is something like death and resurrection. So everybody has their small circle. And we'll read this madman thing in a second. Um, everybody has their small circle and deaths do have to happen. Like, there has to be that moment where you're like, oh my gosh, that person experienced that. I never even thought that was a human experience that you could have. What does that mean for everything that I believe? And so what it does is it maybe creates a little death at a moment in your, in your little circle. And at that moment, there's a breaking out that happens. And then you start to spiral out. Not spiral out in a bad way because you're holding the center, but something has broken a little bit. And so, and then you, you sort of like form a new circle and it's a little bit bigger than it was before because now you've included that experience into the experience of what you already believed. And it hasn't exploded everything from the inside out. Does that make sense? It's just your world has become a little bigger because you've, you've integrated more of the world into the thing that you know. 
um, that you already know. And then at some point, you know, your world is this big. And then you're like, wow, you know, I'm living in a slightly bigger world. Like, that's pretty cool. But then something else is going to happen, right? And then there's going to be some other point in this where there's some other death where you're just like, oh, I didn't know that. What does that mean? And then you have to kind of have to walk through the confusion and the, and the grayness of just kind of like, I don't know what that means for me. I don't know what that means for my friend, for this friendship. I don't know. I don't know what to do, you know? And then you kind of have to sit in that place and you have to pray and you, you seek wisdom or whatever. And at some point, because God is good, like if you continue to stay and abide in him, he breaks you out again. And now you're spiraling further than you were before and you're seeing more reality than you did before. And so that, that's why, to me, the, the Christian idea of growth and Chesterton actually talks about this in that chapter, is a, is a spiraling out. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a grabbing more of reality and pulling it in to the center of what you already know. Um, and so uh, hopefully that makes some sense. I'm going to read this, um, this passage that I have at the top um, about the madman. And we won't spend very much time on this, but I, I just want you to see what I mean. The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. The madman's explanation of a thing is always complete and in a purely rational sense satisfactory. If a man says, for instance, that men have a conspiracy against him, you cannot dispute it except by saying that all men deny that they are conspirators, which is exactly what conspirators would do. His explanation covers the facts as much as yours. His mind moves in a perfect but narrow circle. A small circle is quite as infinite as a large circle, but though it is quite as infinite, it is not so large. A bullet is quite as round as the world, but it is not the world. So, you can, again, you can live in your small world, and it can work for a while. You can live in your small world of Christianity, even, and it can work, and it should work, because people are small before they're big. <laughs> you can only give anyone so much. You can only take one step at a time. So it's not shameful to be like, well, you know, like, all I really know is this, or all I really knew when I was in seventh grade was this. It's like, no, that's all you can know. You can't know but so much at any given moment. You can only know what the Lord has given you capacity to know in that moment. But what you can also do is open yourself up to the fact that there's always more of him. There's always more of him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you guys have seen half plant or any sort of plant. You get it from the nursery or something. And so it's meant, like it started with a seed and it's in this little pot and it has to grow. And you wouldn't want to throw it into a huge pot. Yes. Put it in a little pot. But then once it's stayed in the pot too long, like if you get it from the grocery store and you take it out of the plastic container, the roots are so thick in there that it can't grow anymore. It's mm. like taking all of the nutrients that it can. So it's, it will not grow larger than the pot that it's in. Um, but so if you want to break out of that, and you like take the plastic pot off, and then you either, um, like if you're really careful, you're gonna like slowly massage the roots out, you know, and then you have to put it in a bigger pot, but you're not supposed to put it in a huge pot if you're doing potted plants. Like, but it was really made to be in the ground anyway. So our pots are only means of like allowing it to grow in another environment than it was meant to grow anyway. But it's but also in that, like inevitably, like a lot of the roots get broken. And so it's a balance of like, how much time am I going to spend massaging this out? And sometimes just, it has to get broken off. It's like, okay, it's just going to happen. Um, but then the, the roots regrow. They have room and space to grow. You know what I mean? That's so good. That's so good. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then going on with this, with this quote, um, this is the second paragraph. The lunatic's theory may explain a large number of things, but it does not explain them in a large way. If you or I were dealing with a mind that was growing morbid, we should, chiefly, we should be chiefly concerned not so much to give it arguments as to give it air, to convince it that there was something cleaner and cooler outside. 
I suppose we should say something like this. Oh, I admit that you have your case and have it by heart, and that many things do fit into other things, as you say. I admit that your explanation explains a great deal. But what a great deal it leaves out. Are there no other stories in the world except yours? And are all men busy with your business? How much larger would your life be? How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which you, your own little plot is always being played and you would find yourself under a freer sky in a street full of splendid strangers. Isn't that beautiful? So he's, he's picturing you know, this madman who's sort of stuck in this tiny little theater where his, it's only his plot that's ever being played out. And it always makes sense because it's his plot and it's sort of like everything fits perfectly into it. And so it's like someone walks into this madman's theater basically and is like, oh yeah, I see. I see that you've got quite a plot there. But you know, you want to take a walk with me? You want to just, I mean, we can, we can come back to your plot, you know, in a moment, but you want to just step outside, <laughs> you know, and just so it's like, you don't even have to argue with them. You could just go into their world and be like, wow, what a world you have. Why don't you step outside for a minute and just see, see what it's like to, um, to, to, to look up at the stars, to see people walking by who don't care about you, to see that there's more of the world than just this tiny little plot that's playing out inside of your theater. And to me, this is such a good parallel for the way that Jesus communicates. Um, he does not reject the small ideas that people have of him. And eventually they are, they, they do get rejected, but he basically says like, yes, you're, you're onto something. You know, we're, we, he accepts, like when people come up to him and they tug it and they're like, please, can you stop my bleeding? In a way, that's kind of insulting to the Messiah, right? It's like, I've got better things to do than to just stop your bleeding. That's not why, even if I healed you, you're still going to die. So is that really what you want the Messiah to do? Should he just go around stopping everybody's bleeding? Is that what should happen? Or should I get on with the business of what the Messiah is made to do, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He could say that because of course he's there for larger business than those things. But he takes the little bit that that person has. All that person knows right now is that man can stop my bleeding. And he says, okay, I'll meet you there. I can see that. I can see that. I can see that that could be such a powerful truth to you that you might not be able to see anything outside of your bleeding. That that might be the whole theater of your life right now is I have to stop the bleeding. And so you know what I'll do? I'll touch you right in that place. I'll, I'll, I will heal you right in that place. Not so that you can know that that's all that I am. So that you can live with the truth because you can live with that truth for the rest of your life. I met the guy who stops bleeding. Do you have bleeding? I, I met the guy who stops bleeding. You know, that's not, that's not, the, that's not enough of a story to live with but it's a damn good beginning of a story. And so he meets you there, and then he says, why don't you take a step outside? And healing is a pretty good way to do that, right? It's like, well, you don't have to think about your bleeding anymore, so why don't you come with me? But you can see how that translates to so many of our anxieties, to so much of what we deal with in this modern world. that You end up getting haunted by things that make your world so small. And we haven't even talked about this, but sometimes your world actually gets smaller. It's not just that you're stuck with a certain world. It's that like something will pain you, like the woman with the blood, so much that it's just like, now all I am is this. There is nothing outside of it. I tried to think about other things, but there's nothing outside of this one anxiety. You know? And he will meet you. He is not so large that he cannot meet you there. And yet he is the largest thing in the universe. Okay, any, any questions about that before we, uh, yeah. Do you see it as just as much like equal parts purification as it is taking in the mirror? Like getting rid of the old or like That's right. perfections in your faith or like, you know, within your circle you have kinks or like anything yeah. wrong with that. Do you see it as like 
equally parts purification as in letting in them. Absolutely. So there, there. That is that is kind of the the death and resurrection spiral, right? It's like within that, it's never. It's never quite as perfect as it seems. Like the madman circle. It's like, he can win an argument, but is he right? Does everyone actually have a conspiracy against him? No. I mean, you can't, you're not going to beat him by arguing with him, but there's something in that logic that has to be purified, that has to be cleaned, that has to be shown something outside. But you can't argue with it, and so all you can do is sort of meet him there. But once you do meet him there, if you can get him to go outside, then hopefully he says, well, gosh, that was a, that was a pretty bad world to live in. <laughs> that was, that I, had, I had to be cleaned of that. I had to be... I was just delivered from a prison, basically. But you can't tell someone like you're, you know, it's like you tell your, we're going to talk about this in a moment, but tell your uncle, you're, like, you're an alcoholic. Like, why does that not work? Why does it not work to just tell them the prison they're in? You know, you know what I mean? But, but there is something you can do. You can enter into their world and then you can slowly, patiently show them that there is a bigger world than the world that they're revolving around. And eventually what that leads to is, a, hopefully, is a kind of death because there's, there's no... There's no exit from addiction without a kind of death. I mean, usually, like withdrawal itself, you know, like there's a physical death. There's something that's like, this might actually kill me. Like, you know, if you ever had any kind of connection or experience with someone who's tried to give up heroin or, or opiates or something like that, it's like, you, you actually are afraid that they might die in the process. But there is no other way. It's like, do you want to walk through the door of death or do you want to already be dead? Because there, there's, it's only death or death. You choose, you know. There's, but, but there's a kind of death. There's a kind of death that purifies you. So yeah, that's exactly right. Thanks for listening to the VB Fellows podcast. VB Fellows is a faith-based leadership development program for recent college grads in Virginia Beach, Virginia. If you'd like to know more, please visit us at vbfellows.com. 